0: Welcome to The Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker.
1: What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another episode of The Shark Pod live from Greystone Studios. We've got Marky B out there in, in Glenigiri as usual. Mark, how are you getting on? Very good, Luke. How are you? Good, good. We've got the million dollar Irishman on the line as well, Chris McGail. How are you doing?
2: Yes, I'm very good. Thank you, Luke good. and Mark. Uh, it's a pleasure
1: to join you guys. Ah, it's, it, we were looking forward to this one. Um, so, uh, Chris Miguel, your, your book came out this week, I believe. Uh, the million dollar, dollar Irishman. It's uh, it's out today, was it? Or what was the official launch uh, yesterday?
2: Yeah, uh, yesterday. So it was on. Um, it's on uh, Amazon. It's on Easons. It's Bookstation. Uh, and also um, with Kenny's, uh, and, and the Audible book came out yesterday also. so yeah, I, had
0: a, I had a listen to that today, Chris. Very good. The Audible one, really, really good.
2: Well, cool. well actually, actually, Mark, I'm very pleased to do a couple of things. First of all, a little plug. Here's the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the um, the, um, the paperback. On the side is, is, is a, a section here which says, I'm Chris McGale. turn it around. WTFRU, which stands for Who the Fuck Are You, <laughs> which comes from my sort of attitude thing when I was in the city as a, as, a, as what they call the big swinging and dicks. And, um, you know, I was generating $28 million a year as, as an Irishman from Oma, you know, born above a pub. You know, I'd come from absolutely nowhere working with these guys who were, you know, big city guys who went to the right schools. I didn't, all those things. But having said that, I went to Queens and Belfast and I had my big break getting into. Um, working with Ulster Investment Bank in Dublin. Uh, the other thing I wanted to show before you guys get going is a fabulous, um, a fabulous list of really great books, uh, which includes at the top uh, the Million Dollar Irishman, but it also includes Matthew McConaughey and Darren Brown, and and that is Mark Baker's. Audible list. So, uh, there we are. <laughs> I <laughs> sent him a grab earlier on.
1: Well, I thought you were reading Matthew McConaughey. I'm like, listen, Chris, we're big fans of Matthew on the on the podcast as well. So, uh, you know, we you know, he interacted with some of our social media before. And me and Marker like this. You know, it's going to happen. We're getting we're getting uh, we're getting McConaughey on, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, he's very welcome anytime he wants to come on the shark pod for sure so like we were saying this so you, the the book follows uh your life from starting off in oma um during uh, a turbulent time let's say uh and you know and then uh, the kind of trials and tribulations as you're you kind of rise through uh the financial uh the city uh, business uh, in london uh working for one of the biggest uh, investment banks doing very well there it goes on to about gambling it goes on to spread betting all those really interesting stuff um but what's the when the when you when you got started in uh or when you were born oma what was that what was that like for you what was the kind of situation you were born into was it um was your parents around what was the what's the story there
2: so um Bad timing. I mean, the story is essentially from John Street to Wall Street, and John Street is where I was born in Oma, literally born upstairs above a pub. Um, and so I spent my whole life around money and people and dealing with people and relationships, you know, selling raffle tickets as a, as a 10-year-old and, and, you know, carrying the bets from the boogie to the boogies from the pub, from the punters, from the And so I was literally gambling in pennies when I was pre-teenage, age 12 years old, getting the excess from the guys on, on any winnings and then and, and putting that on something. And um, and so I went from betting on pennies to pounds to hundreds to, to thousands to hundreds of thousands and then ultimately millions at Merrill Lynch. But, but I myself had become a almost a professional gambler while I was working in the city as well. So I'd be betting on 5, 10, 20 grand on things pretty regularly on a weekly basis. Such so that an old friend back in Oma said, you're betting more... Uh, on on a w- in a week than the price of a small house in Oma. <laughs> so it was uh, quite a statement at the time made me laugh. So it's been a great great life, you know, a great journey. I mean, I'm, 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 I've had everything I could ever wish for in life, you know, and, and I hope uh, me talking to you inverted commas, young guys, you know, I'm 58. I had my first vaccine today. You know, that's huh? the age I am, you know. Nice. Uh, um, I, I'm really pleased to be on the call because I think I'd like to use the word inspirational i mean um the book and its predecessor which is which is called the humpty dumpty man which is to do with my near-death uh, car crash um you know the word most used to describe that in this which is more or less 100 reviews on amazon between the humpty dumpty man and the million dollar irishman uh, the word most used is inspirational so i do hope in this chat to inspire some people to say you can do it and um you know it's always a pleasure to talk to young people and and, and feel feel the energy and, and the opportunity uh and the opportunity is there
1: it's amazing to think that so inspiring people like we talk about i know you mentioned us as the young people we always think about people when they're leaving school going to college leaving college <laughs> kind of at the beginning of their career as well and it's it's something that uh, if you can have an inspiring life that's always uh that's always a good end goal to have but along the way when you were in oma was was I mentioned, you know, you were running around uh, doing things for bookies and uh, there was a lot of stuff going on uh, politically at the time, I guess that was the 1970s uh, in Northern Ireland. So the like, were you ever kind of aspiring to be uh, kind of a, a big shot a banker in the city? Was that anyone around you that said, Chris, that's, that's what you should be doing with your... Uh,
2: it's a great question. Um, you know, the three things I should have said about Owen, number one, uh, we were orphaned kids, so I never knew my daddy died when I was three. So uh, I just become three. My, my brother, who was then four going five, um, and then our mother died. Um, we were seven kids, but in the book, I referenced my relationship with my brother, Paul. Um, so our mother died when I was 12. He was 13 going 14. Um, and then he um, had was sort of kicked out of the brothers, Christian brothers, four months later after they gave him a really bad beating. So we grew up with a sort of feral life with the troubles going on, you know, as, as one guy said, you know, Chris Miguel was running from the UDR when I was running for a bus, you know, I mean, it was like, uh, it wasn't, I was never an act involved in anything, but, you know, the world was crazy. I mean, it was all around you, guns and, and bombs and and killings. And, you know, it was just a crazy world and um, which I was very happy not to be a participant of, but everybody was a victim of that. So we had the sort of victimhood of being orphan kids. And, being around a pub, and then my brother hit the booze and became a chronic alcoholic. Uh, I um, was a feral gambler. I spent my days in the bookies. So while I was sort of allowed in there because I was the bookies runner, you know, I could hang around there all day, and I did. And so I went from betting on horses, which I was very good at, to playing poker. So my life at f- sort of 15, 16 was poker and horses and money and, and, and hustling people on a pool table, you know, and <laughs> hanging out in Bandoran in the summer based on money we made you know, hustling people. <laughs> uh, so I, I had no ambition to be anything like a stockbroker or anything like that. I went back to school at 18 with no qualifications. You know, my brother was was kicked out, expelled, had his, inverted commas, scholarship terminated by the Christian Brothers. I left too. There was no, nobody at home to say, oh, don't do that, son. You know, and we just just left and, and bummed around for many years. Um, and I went back to school at 18 and, um, and had no ambition whatsoever other than to, to get some accountancy or something to help me run the family business you know which i'd now become uh, head off everybody else has sort of stepped aside over the years to the sisters and, and both my brothers and it came to me so that was my ambition just to learn accountancy and a bit of business a bit of law whatever and this sort of b-tech course um, and then suddenly i found myself at queens and then suddenly i found myself doing advanced statistics and econometrics and things like this. I'm going, bloody hell, what's this? You know, I mean, how, it's like that song, you know, um, talking heads. My God, how did I get here? You know, it's like, uh uh. And, and then suddenly I find myself in Deloitte and then suddenly it's Ulster Investment Bank. And the way I got into Ulster Investment Bank is I was punting shares in all the UK IPO, all the privatizations. So you, you guys won't remember, but British Gas and British Telecom, all these nationalized industries were being be, being reprivatized, and um, you know I was punting them and had a whole lot of guys buying shares for me, and you know, stagging these things and selling them on the open. It was like a lot of fun. So I would moved from horses to poker to to, to stocks and shares without yeah. really thinking about it. And so um, before I knew it, I'm, I'm trading shares instead of betting on, as well as betting on horses and playing yeah. poker.
1: So, it kind <laughs> so of. So it was quite a journey. Quite a journey. Because I, I know that they don't like you know they don't like to talk about that as if it's gambling but it is there's a lot of speculation that goes on um with with these uh like investment banks and stuff like that and i think i've got a little bit of experience in that because i worked for davies for two years out of uh, university as well and i think that so we used to all sit around we were in our early 20s and um we used to you know we'd go to the duke pub that is kind of like the davy pub uh no, no. On, duke, on duke street and no. uh, we'd sit around and i feel i always felt like we kind of missed the boat a little bit with the kind of <laughs> the stock game everyone was it was they didn't when we got in there we thought we were going to be uh, help, you know um making trades kind of you know uh helping with uh with you know wealthy people making decisions stuff like that and mostly younger people that came in were just going to kind of admin stuff like everybody they weren't allowing us to do anything and we were like what's going on i thought we were, i thought this was going to be wall street but it was uh it just felt like a bank
2: <laughs> yeah there's a lot of truth and i fully understand that i mean i was just very very lucky and in so many ways i was lucky to get into queens you know out of all my tech you know, I hadn't uh, had gone back to school and did a, I did a Christ course on O-Levels and, and, and then a B-Tech course. And I got a distinction, but but nonetheless, they, they just relaxed the rules to give such people a try. So I got into nice. Queens, I got into Deloitte, got into Ulster Bank, Investment Bank in Dublin. So I was in Dublin and it was great, you know, the very early days of, of the um, the Dublin investment community. So so you were just behind that, unfortunately, I'm guessing you were 10 years behind that. I was 87, something like that. So and I don't know when you were there, but... But
1: twenty twelve ish. So right, oh, uh, I'm way back. Yeah, so anyway,
2: the message, I know you're only kids, so I might only Then I think of myself as, um, so, so, so I was sort of there at the right time, you know. Uh, yeah. Um. Oh, Bank of Ireland were, were growing assets under management hugely at that time. Um. So the banks all managed um, semi-state firms like RTE and and Telecom Ireland and things like that at the time. And they'd be shared around AIB Investment Managers, Bank of Ireland Asset Management, Ulster Bank Investment Management. And, and, and each of them had a slice. Each it was more focused on what they call business risk, that you didn't underperform your competitor rather than you know, try to outperform. But asset, stock markets were growing after the 87 crash. Black Monday, 87 was more or less when I started. I started a month before that six weeks before that so then for the period of time after that right through to 2011 uh, sorry, to 2001 where i was there uh, the markets went up you know the the, the markets went down uh, sorry i take it back march 2000 so you know it's sort of 13 14 years of upside in the markets nice Um, and so we were there just at the right time you know i haven't been an asset manager in dublin so by the time i was um, in 1991, uh, which would have made me um, about uh, 28, I was running 100 million for Ulster Bank in Dublin in UK equities. So it was like an amazing moment in time, but, but somebody was in that seat, me, you know. And, and after that, sort of to go back to your point, um, look, it's dead man's shoes, you know, to get the opportunity, it's hard because somebody's got that opportunity, and you know, yeah. you don't need two people, you don't give you don't need two people around $100 million, taking $50 million each. One yeah. guy runs it, and that's it, you know. So I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I fully get that. It's harder, but it wouldn't put people off. I think there's, there's always an opportunity to get into the market, and I tell people all the time, there's lots of people come to me, and I say, look, there's no better industry to be in. People are getting older. The world's getting richer. You know, it needs to be serviced from people who, who are smart, street smart, you know, ambitious and it's an industry that's going to grow and grow for a long, long time. So there exactly. aren't many of those around. New technology, and, you know, where, where else but you know, financial services is a great place to be.
1: And so, just to, for the people that don't have uh, that much experience in in finance and stuff like that, when you're t- when you're, you're talking about uh, working for Ulster uh, Investment Bank and uh, managing funds, are they like funds of institutions like pension funds that you're trying to get a, a return on over a year? Are they individ- like wealthy individuals that you're? Kind of trading on behalf of what? what what's the what's the role well, there? Well,
2: with, with David, private clients and Goodbody private clients would we'll be handling most of uh, and, and other such entities. Marion will be handling uh, the funds for the, the high net worth private clients. Um, back in the day, um, as I began to say earlier, I didn't finish the point. Really, was Bank of Ireland Asset Management AIB Investment Management and of Bank Investment Management were running largely semi-state pension funds. But then the performance was quite good, and especially Bank of Ireland started raising money from the U.S. So you had these huge yeah, investment funds, investing th- funds in Europe through Bank of Ireland in Dublin. So assets under management for B- B.M. as you will remember them being called, uh, went from three billion uh, Irish pounds to fifty billion over a period of about Jeez. seven or eight years and was huge, you know, I mean, a, a guy called Chris Riley, hello, Chris, if you're watching, uh, who was an absolutely brilliant asset manager, you know, a guy with real proper balls, you know, and, and had a strong views and, and, and really, really nailed the market for many, many years. You know, so Chris Riley was was instrumental in, in the growth of the Dublin investment community. Unfortunately, um, they, they sort of stayed away from the dot-com thing, um, because it was Aircom, Telecom Air, and they ended up with a lot of Aircom, which wasn't a good place to be. Um, and, you know, things like Baltimore Technologies, which you may or may not have read a bit in my book, um, came and didn't help either. So for a period of sort of the dot-com bubble, when it went bust, while they weren't really in it, they had telecom-related things that didn't help. And then when, when they came out of that, they started to lose the funds under management from $50 billion down, you know and eventually um you know that
1: they, they run they're, they're not in that scale anymore you know and <clears throat> so when you so you started working in the investment bank doing well there um at what stage do you uh go to london does somebody give you a call and say you've kind of made the grade or is it something that you you say all oh, these london guys are making you know bigger money this is where the, the money is will i go over there what's the kind of driver to go over to see if we can win over there <laughs>
2: In my case, it was need, actually. And, again, I wasn't, had no plan. So, again, I was just very, very lucky. I saw the opportunity in the end, but, but it was still need. So I was in a court case over the near-death car crash that I had, which I lost. So they offered me 90000 in 1991, which is equivalent to 300000 today. I declined and I lost the case and got zero. So I went to London with the tail between my legs, really. Um, I had met a guy... Um, who was working for a firm called Smith Newcourt. And he was going to, soon to become the chief executive of that. And he was in Dublin wondering why his firm weren't doing any business in Ireland, um, which in turn I joined um, because I lost a court case. Um, and then in time they were acquired, that was 91, they were acquired in 1995 by Merrill Lynch. And I sort of landed on my feet, You know, working for the biggest Irish investment bank in the world, who happened to be the biggest investment bank in the world as well. Has been the biggest yeah. the bank, and so you know, I, I was just the guy from Oma running rhyme with the, the great and the good, of Merrill Lynch, which was heavenly, absolutely heavenly.
1: But when when you got to when you got to London, and you got your first kind of position there, how was that like? Because in my in my, cause I've met some of these guys over the years, especially when I was in the the kind of Davy stuff, um, and it's kind of the the Eton guys, the kind of yeah. the kind of tough guys in there. Was that the your? your experience or was there from a trading point of view and that type of thing or there was there kind of a more of a gritty type of personality in the in the trading room who's in there
2: well it's a good question again in fact smith new court as i said was a jobbing firm so back in the day on the floor of the stock exchange before electronic screens there were literally guys you know doing this tic tac stuff and people they were in the pit and people were shouting orders and bits of paper floating around you as it is today on the new york Stock exchange but but, you know, you'll see that, uh, you guys will know, but just for other people listening, um, th- that's that's actually real. I mean, the, the trades go on there, but it, most of the trades are done all, on screens, off-site, you know, but, but they keep that there for, you know, in order to keep, you know, the, the launches for, the, ring the bell for new firms and so on. And it is real, it is functioning there on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, but it doesn't apply in London anymore. So smith New Court, Smith Brothers, rather, before they were smith Court making prices in gold and, and, and mining stocks and stuff like that. Um, when Rothschilds came along to become Smith New Court, they became, you know, after Big Bang, which was 87 also when I joined 86, 87. So when screens moved on on, on when when trading moved on online rather, um, they became Smith New Court and set up a, a stockbroking business. So I joined that part of the business, you know, separate from the trading part. So the trading guys were just fabulous. You know, they really knew the price of everything, and they were prepared to take risks and so on and so on. So I absolutely loved it there. I felt landed on my feet. You know, a guy who knew the price of things as well. Working with these guys it was it was heaven. And Chris Riley, you know, just basically made me. Then he started sending orders my way, and 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 the guys I used to work with at Ulster Bank and AIB as well, and Irish Life. So I had sort of four or five accounts really feeding me and it was heaven. So then Merrill Lynch took over and then it all changed because Merrill Lynch, whilst they were um, um, different in New York, you know, everybody they employed in London and Europe was Oxbridge and and, and, um, and Eton. It was a very different world. So so we had built this great business with Newcourt and, you know, growing revenues sharply such that Merrill Lynch paid um, $750 million for us. It was a lot of money back in 1995. Um, and so we were a really good business. And, and But Merrill made the business much better, of course. I mean, for me, it was heaven. You know, I had the whole investment bank suite of services. But it was a very different type of person. You know, I had, you know, the big swinging dick, tall. I'm, I'm five foot six. you know, with what, what I like to refer to as a funny accent, you know. Yeah. Uh, working with these guys and and then that's why i coined that term i'm chris miguel the the are you because it was my sort of a defense mechanism it's a bit of you right and and so that that's where that comes from so i found it more difficult in time as i progressed up the ranks in merrill you know whilst i did get right to the top you know i was a managing director and country manager for ireland and there were you know there weren't that many country managers altogether and 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 i don't know ten um in the whole firm and um in terms of um managing director that was the top five percent of the firm and you were making a million dollars a year and you know it's crazy numbers and, and a great life in its own way
1: so a million dollars a year in is this kind of early 90s do we, we late
2: late 1990s late
1: 1990s so a million before, uh, before the millennium yeah yeah i remember in the book you were you're saying that uh at one stage you're making more money than the footballers uh, in arsenal um, yeah
2: yeah we're earning more than the arsenal was a great line from one of my you okay. but but yeah we're earning more than the arsenal yeah and, and you know we started off I, I was on I don't know 60,000 40,000 plus a car on day one um, and my net take-home pay sort of trebled from Dublin because the taxes were high in Dublin and the conversion exchange rate was better and so within sort of three years I was making 300,000 a year and you know it just went crazy. Um, every year, you know, fifty grand bonus. You know, you get your first fifty grand bonus. You go, wow, what's this? You know, it's like. <laughs> and how, old, um, how old are you
1: when you're getting these fifty grand bonuses?
2: Uh, well, I was sort of a late starter in the sense I didn't go back to school. I was eighteen, so mm-hmm. I went to Dublin in um, I went to Dublin in eighty seven. So I was about twenty five. Um, I had the, the crash then yeah Uh, so by the time i went to london i was probably 28 so by the time i was making my money i was actually my early
1: 30s so i was a late starter i wasn't that young late start i'm sure there's a lot of people in the early 30s that love a a few bonuses like that but the 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 thing me and mark were trying to think about this as well and i like in the book the way you describe how uh how the the business works and it it seems like it's simple enough as in uh you do the trade there's a commission on the trade of 0.2 percent yeah. mm-hmm. and then that goes towards your your p&l when mm-hmm. when they kind of explain that to you uh because me and Mark Rose, we, we said like that that seems like a a job that'd be great just if you could have unlimited upside and you can just get, get after it but are you like do you just have a, a book of uh, clients and you're calling them with that the, with today's picks or how does that that actually work
2: well, That's a good question again. I mean, so I had five accounts in Ireland paying me more than two million dollars. The fifth, aside from the four that I mentioned, uh, Ulster became KBC, Irish Life, AIB and, and Bank of Ireland. So then um, Pioneer set up in Dublin and, and and they were huge. They were Italian at the time. They've been acquired by Pioneers and American firm in the meantime. So so um, So basically, I had those five accounts, let me say. And so in my pot of business, you know, whatever commissions came from those five accounts went to me. So, so, but, but uh, we were making, I was making, sorry, um, $28 million a year from those five accounts. Um, you know, it's colossal. I mean, if you you take the numbers at 0.2, which is a fifth of 1%, it adds up to 1.4 billion of trades. Wow. (laughs) You
1: know? <laughs> and, and you are you, call, are you calling those trades? You're saying, this is what we're no, going to do? No, 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 no.
2: Okay. I mean, the flows of money are coming in. So, so Bank of Ireland, for example, just because I, I keep using them as, as they were the best guys in time, without doubt. Um, they acquired New Ireland Assurance. And New Ireland had a portfolio of about, I think it was nearly 500 stocks. Bank of Ireland consolidated that into less than 100 so they, they, they did what's called a transition trade, which I handled, which was great. It was a billion euros at the time, you know, early, early, um, I think it was euros, a billion pounds or a billion euros, late, late 1990s, I'd say. So it was still probably pounds, but it was a billion anyway, and it's in the book. And, um, and basically, so, so they may have had it within that less than hundred stocks, Called it 95. They may have had 35 UK positions. So, so I'd be concentrating on those 35 names and if anything happened in any of those names, I was straight on the Bank of Ireland. And similarly, I would know the portfolio, uh, UK portfolio. I didn't do pan-European. I was just too busy doing what I did. Um, Pan-European is a norm now rather than UK only. Um, but back then, I, I would have known the portfolio of every one of those five accounts in UK shares. So whatever's happening in, that may have made, added up to maybe 60 or 70 names. I'd be watching them all the time. And whoever got the first, needed the first call, got the first call, not, not who was the biggest. Okay. And so that's it. You, you, you're sort of constantly in a dynamic process. You know, some news has come out. The news can be good. It can be bad, or it can be indifferent. It may be in the price already. You know, the price may have gone down and suddenly there's some bad news. And actually that's the time to buy. Price may have gone up but some bad news. Well, don't worry about it. It's, what do they spend that money on? It's all gone into investment. It'll be better numbers next year. So you're constantly making judgments on news. And I think that's where I was good, you know, because first of all, I have a a brain that can contain and consume all this information. Just as I did in betting on horses, I knew everything there was to know. Nobody knew more about horses than me. Nobody knew more about my stocks than me. This is a sort of psychology, which is I'm Chris McGale, You know, you had to believe all that stuff and you had to go for it all the time. It's like I described it in the book as like an ongoing game of poker. It never ends.
1: Are, so you're when you're 1.8 billion of trades going through your accounts. 1.4, yeah. 1.4, 1.4. Uh, but who's counting? It's still a lot of money. So uh, 1.4 yeah. uh, billion going through. Are you uh, stressed out a bits the whole time? Are you, you know, you know what's? How are you feeling about that all, all the time? Is there, you know, it seems uh, like there's a lot on your plate did cocaine. there. Cocaine.
2: Yeah, you know, just ask your question, lots of guys did coke. Okay. By the way, um, I, I never touched it in my life. I don't know. If- Trouble with booze, you know, you go to the pub after work. But I joke about that, you know, I mean, look, here's what it is it's a life that you, it's, I'm sure professional footballers, strikers in teams, they have to score, you know. I describe in the book, I was a striker, a star striker for the team, you know, we had all these analysts. Giving me the information. They were relying on me to score the goals, right? So, so I mean, I'd be brought on side a deal and everyone would sit around saying, What do you think, Chris? Can you make this happen, Chris? And I'd say, Yeah, I think I can make it happen. <laughs> Just go and do it, you know? Or no, oh, I'm sorry, this is the wrong price or the wrong story or we shouldn't go with this or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so you had a lot of decision making to do. But I, I described often to myself, uh, I was happiest when I was really flat out, you know, when I hadn't got time to think about any individual situation. So you know if I, if I'm if I'm dealing in four or five different situations all at the same time. Back in the beginning, we actually did the trades as well. So we had dealing sheets with duplicates on it. You know, um, blue on top, yellow in the middle, and, and and pink on the bottom. You know, one went one place, the other went the other, and and you actually did the trades. So the guys be on the phone. You be saying, "Yeah, I bought a hundred thousand for you," you know, and somebody else yeah. be on the phone, and and I used to joke yeah. at the time. You know, I wouldn't pick up the phone for less than a million pounds which was um, be- which was to paraphrase like, Linda Evangelista. Um you know and I just haven't got time. I've some guy called and and that's you know I can't take that call, you know, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I so mean- then in time we moved on from the dealing went to dealers and, and what they call sales traders who sat in the middle between salesmen, sales traders and dealers. Um, so the, the sales trading function became very important. Oh. Couldn't manage it, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, you just took as many calls, did as much as you could, and that was all you did. But you were flat out all the time.
1: And Are you thinking to yourself? So, I, I, oh, you guys can hear me, yeah, you are yeah, yeah cool. Reason. Sorry, I was look. I thought I was breaking up there. Um, so I, I, I worked in a uh, like a, a real sales environment. Well, I'm, i was always worked in sales environments, so but I remember working in one particular pl- place in Canada when I was living there, and it was very much. Like, every if you made a sale, you got $1,800. And I just remember, every time you did this, like, I couldn't believe that they were going to give me another 1800 It didn't matter how, like, there was no end to how much I could make of that. I'm calling people all over Alberta. Like, yeah. I, got, like I couldn't believe that they would give me these uh, lists of leads to call. Like, uh, <laughs> true. Because I'd come from working in Davey where it was all very uh, structured. But um, my point is, like, were you thinking in your head, like, like every time you made a trade, it's it's all adding up? in your head to say at the end of the month this is how much I'm going to get? Is that why you're not taking that, uh, that call unless it's a million dollars? Uh,
2: you know, from 1991 through to um, 2000, almost all the time my PL went up every single month. Wow. You know, because all the money assets were growing in Dublin. So there's more and more money coming through. And so very often it was just putting more money into the same stocks. You weren't given a new idea every day. You know, if you were Vodafone is a great example. I mean, I was investing in Vodafone when he made military radios and they were called Regal Telecom. So by the time I came to London, um they were they just changed the name to Vodafone. And I was friendly with the chief executive and all these guys because we were investing in this small company called Regal Telecom. Uh and they came out of another small company called Regal Electronic. So they actually—I actually was there when I learned why they named Vodafone Vodafone, which stands for Voice and Data Vodafone. So anyway, um, so we knew everything there was to know about Vodafone because we were on first-name terms with the bosses. So if anybody needed to know anything about Vodafone, you got the call. Yeah, I'll have a word. You know, it's and this is before they were the biggest company in the world, and then handled. We then handled. Um, well, actually, we defended management and what was the biggest ever corporate takeover. Uh, in 2001, I think it was, no, sorry, it was actually 2000. The deal completed just before the tech bubble burst in March 2000. So I think the figure in the end was $350 billion, which was was until about four or five years ago, the biggest corporate transaction ever. So, you know, Vodafone was good to me along the way. and, And the guys in Dublin, Bank of Ireland, had a lot of money in Vodafone and management and made a lot of money in that period, trading telecom shares. So to answer your question, I think, without, I think I'm think i still on the same track here. And There was just so much going on. I was in the right place at the right time. The revenues were going up. You just had to stay on top of it. And actually, the more you were doing, the better, because you hadn't any time to worry or think about any particular trade, because you were just flat out doing it all. Does that make sense?
1: It definitely makes sense. It's just such an interesting time, it seems to be. And then you've, you've got this kind of almost like it's a... Uh, an unfair advantage with the stuff coming from Ireland that the London guys wouldn't know much about. You've, you're, you've got your kind of ins there, but I think, it, like in the book, you, you, you speak as, as well about uh, the gambling side of things—the horses, mm. the poker, the the spread betting, which spread betting mm. was kind of like popular uh, when I was in Davie, and we we would do all the young guys would be doing that on IG Exchange. Yeah. Um, but at the time, the uh, the the margin that you needed, like, or the you know. For those people uh, who are listening that don't know, like that type of uh, that type of game, uh, you have to have a certain amount of uh, you know buffer in your account yeah. to to make these uh, bets. On basically, spread betting is betting on if so, if something's going to go up and down, and it's by point. So if it go, the footsie mm-hmm. goes up ten points, and you have a pound a point, you win ten points. If it goes down, you lose ten. Um, but when we were doing it on IG, the margin that you needed was really small. Um, so we yeah. could we could now it's really so you have to have a good few uh, pound to actually uh, get involved which is probably for the best because uh, I didn't do well Mark I remember I met for those people from Dublin I met Mark Baker when I was about twenty four in Casey Peaches for lunch and I told him I was going to be a millionaire based on this because I had a a good a good run with the uh, with IG and I'm like this is this is easy yeah. you know <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Mark didn't believe me then but uh, it didn't work out in the end uh, but anyway so. Uh, when, it, when it comes to that was that a big part I've got
2: a good story on spread betting let me tell you yeah Actually, go for it um, so I was in I was in a pub in, in London um, um, and I was having a few drinks and we were having a chat it was um, Europa 96 whatever it was uh, Italian 90 remember that was World Cup right so Europa 96 um, so so I um, bet high and bet low on yellow cards with some guy and this is basically spread betting right so the guy said, um, "You know, the the betting is two hundred twenty-five yellow cards, whatever the hell it was. I think that was a number." And I said, "Oh, there'll be more than that, you know." And, and of course, he went high, and I, I went high, and he went low, and, and he owed me a couple hundred quid when it was all over. So when it came two years later for the for the for the World Cup, um, I was sort of thinking about this, and I'm sitting reading. Um, there's this great article in, in the Daily Telegraph on a Saturday. It was written by a guy called you may call Angus Loughran, I think his name was. He was a friend of Alex Ferguson. But he used to make these tips, you know, and and the, the, the column was called For the Better. It's a good little play on words. And so anyway, it was about this day about red cards in the ninety eight World Cup. And so he said that the last World Cup, now there were more teams from versus 94 and there were more games therefore, And therefore there were going to be an increase in red cards. But there was also... A new edict from um, the referees about sliding tackles and tackles from behind, immediate red cards. So the number had got, the, the previous outcome have been 26 or something like that, red cards in the previous World Cup. But this time they were making it 53. So 51-3, there's your spread, quite a lot, right? Uh, two points on, on 50, you know, 4%. So, so anyway, um, I said, okay, I'll go short. So I picked up the phone Saturday morning. I'll go short five hundred quid a point, right? So five hundred quid. Okay, fine. Done. Um, World Cup started. No red cards. So every single day, I put another five hundred quid. Yeah. So.
1: so every time. So just for the so. listeners, you're 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 saying that there's going to be less than what the bookies think that they're I'm going betting to be.
2: down, right? Yeah. So
1: yeah. every every point under fifty one, you're 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 betting that five hundred. So say yeah. if it's uh, if it's forty five, you win whatever, six times, six times, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. But,
2: but repairman is a spread to buy it back. So you, if you sell it, you got to buy it back. If you buy it, you got to sell it. So one way or another, you have to cash out uh, yeah. at the end of the spread period. So in other words, at the end of the tournament or when you, if you want to close out. So if you close out at the end of the tournament, you're out at the spot price, whatever the final number is. If you close out before the end, you're out with, with a loss on the spread as well, no matter what way you go. Yeah. So had I gone short at 51, which I did, and let's say it had been a red card or two, and then it would have gone up. So the spread would have gone up to say fifty-five-seven, which case I would have lost six, even though maybe there's only two red two red cards. Do you understand? So, yeah. so anyway, I was betting it down, and I had nine of these five hundred quid. So I had four and a half thousand a point. You know, it was quite a lot of points, red pounds. So one day I think it was two Colombians got sent off, and. Uh, <laughs> It wasn't great. So I'm sitting in the office, you know, playing dumb and, and thinking, "Oh God, there goes nine grand." You know, and, and the spread would have gone against me as well, it moved quite significantly, a lot more than two. And then that evening, I'm at home, you know, my missus and all the rest, and, and slip into the front room to watch the match. there's no interest whatsoever in the match with Scotland and somebody. And Craig Birdie gets sent off. I'm going, "Oh my God!" You know. Um, on the day, you know, it was 13 and a half grand down. I'm thinking, oh, for God's sake, you know, and it spread right against me, maybe 30 grand down, you know, it may add another two points on top. And so, anyway, um, I had this fit of, of shingles, you know, that moment when, oh my God, my body convulsed when he got sent off. And also, I was really disappointed in the final as well. The thing about betting on sports, it ruins your um, interest in sport. So in the World Cup final, um, France won. My only interest was that they wouldn't have somebody sent off. (laughs) And, of course, Marcel Dessay got sent off in the final. and cost me four and a half grand. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, the final outcome on the thing was uh, it made up at 22. And my my short was 27. So I made five times, five times four and a half grand. So uh, 22 grand. the end but it wasn't worth it wasn't worth the ups and downs you know it was huge pressure far more pressure from that than going in and doing the job you know because you're thinking about it all the time plus the games are being played all day long you know 10 in the morning to 12 in the day to nine at night and you're watching these things it's just and all the time you're doing your job and but no i i don't recommend spread betting to anyone i don't recommend gambling to anyone as it happens it just completely destroys your love for sport and, you know, you generally will lose, but I'm just giving you a couple of winning examples. You know, there are a whole lot of losing ones as well. I lost a lot of money in betting, spread betting on, um, on the uh, um, election of 1997. Um, Tony Blair, you know, he had a huge landslide win and I predicted he would have a landslide win, but I didn't predict the scale of it. So I was short about 150 point gain for Labour over the Tories. And it
1: came out at two hundred and fifty. Cost me fifty grand, hundred points. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> yeah. Sorry, the, go the, ahead. The dude. spread of betting, as it not the spread betting, but like the the spread of the of the things that you had bet on over the years. It seems like it's from horses to politics to uh, Marcel Desailly getting sent off for four hundred four thousand pounds. <laughs> it's like it's a uh, it's an interesting way to live. What do you say, Mark? Just on the batting side, Chris, you mentioned. Well, previously you
0: mentioned being in the right place at the right time a lot mm. of the time. In the book, there was one time that, that I one one main thing that kind of uh, stuck out to me about maybe not being in the right place at the right time to do with a meeting that you didn't you didn't attend oh, and uh, an opportunity <laughs> not to remind you of it, but I it, it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No.
2: And take a drink of tea to settle myself for that one. Bedfair, Bedfair, Bedfair. Uh, I would have been all over it. (laughs) I didn't attend a meeting. It wasn't held at Merrill Lynch. It was held at Warburg, uh, which was subsequently consumed by UBS. So, and one of the PAs to one of the bosses came to me, you know, I didn't know her well, but she came to me and said, I know you're big into the betting and would you come to this meeting? And I'm sort of shrugging the shoulders, you know. We're doing meetings all the time you know i mean like we've got two meet two or three meetings a day you know going on and, and just another meeting somewhere else in another place you know um and it turned out to be bedfair and and they they, they floated at 1.4 billion so the answer to that is the one percent stake would have been worth 14 million but more than that i was in their league right <laughs> i was they would have jumped all over me and I would have jumped all over them. They would have said, Oh my God, it's, it's a bit like getting the job at Ulster bank. You know, when I, when I got that job, they were saying, you're trading stocks and shares, really, you know, yeah. you know, uh, nobody was doing it then. you know, there was no 24 um, seven, business programs or anything like that, you know, um, and, and I got the jobs on day one. I was offered jobs to average life at the same time. Um, so anyway, um, I would have been all over that, and I would have been a, certainly a big investor, if not a, an executive of the firm. And I would, I would have would have had a very different outcome. That's yes. the true story. Yeah.
0: And and just to go back to to the like the I'm always interested in people who are kind of high performers compared to the average, like somebody who is good at say what you do compared to someone who is excellent. Mm-hmm or talents um, that you had that kind of separated you from the average performer, or the good performer?
2: Um, I think think uh, one guy offered me a job, a guy called Terry Smith, and this was another miss for me, by the way. He offered me 1% of his company, and his company was um, Colin Stewart. And I knew the the previous boss, Andy Stewart, whose name was on the firm, but Terry Smith offered me 1% of the firm. And I just left Merrill Lynch and I think I thought, look I've you know, just taken after 11 years I've just got away from the coal phase. you know the, the heat in theres like feels like a job in, 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 at the coal phase. So I said, I just need a couple of months to get out of there. So I've got a whole lot of options in stock, which I'm not allowed to do. It's take another job for a period of time. And I'll come back. So I went back X months later and he said, forget it. I don't offer one percent of my company to just anyone. That's in the book, right? So I missed three and a half million, five million million, $5 million in that. But anyway, um, anyway, um, Terry Smith had a set of rules, which to answer your question. So he was looking for people with various characteristics that included divorced parents, death death of a parent, death of a sibling, you know, lots of very harsh um, real-life experiences. I, I said at the time I ticked every box, you know. <laughs> I had them all, you know. So, so there is some element of that I'm sure, for me at least, it doesn't apply to everybody, but I think you have to be really really hungry first and foremost, you know, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know what gives a person that, you know, not everyone's been through my experience, very few have, so it's not true for everyone, but that's my own experience. The second thing, unfortunately you just have to have this sort of buzz, you know, it, it doesn't, you, don't, you can't pick it up off the street, you know, I, I'm, I'm the only one in my family, that, that has this sort of approach, you know, it's, it's not for everyone. And, and I don't know whether that comes from starting betting at sort of pre teenager and, and live my whole life around gambling and betting or whether it's just in my character, testosterone, whatever it might be. I don't know. But, but the one thing I do know, you know, you have to have a single minded attitude as well. I'm Chris McGill, you know, um, and part of that, as I've explained earlier, was my defensive mechanism, you know, stay away from me because I'm, you know, I'm not a good guy to fall out with, sort of thing, you know. Uh, um But to answer the question, is there are many, many factors? But hunger is very, very high up the list.
0: Yeah, I think people think they're driven by money, but when they're really, they're really actually driven by com- competition. Or would you say you're very, you were very competitive? I know yeah. you were a competitive boxer when you were younger as well. Yeah, right? I was
2: county kind of champion, yeah. Mm. I fought Barry McGuigan's sparring partner. That's my claim to fame. <laughs> <I see. laughs> and got absolutely hammered. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, never, I never boxed again, but I was county champion twice. Yeah. It's,
1: okay, the, the competitive cool. thing is, is Mark really, he's a competitive guy. Um, i've often said to mark that i'm not competitive but then mark lists a, a whole thing of because mark's known me for almost 20 years now so he's, he he lists off a lot of uh very competitive situations that i was uh that i've put myself in but it's uh it is something to maybe teach your kids about as well like it's, well then you said like you can't really it's, it's you kind of have that drive or you don't or you have to have that single-mindedness i've
0: like i have two i have two daughters chris and one of them is just not competitive at all. She just wants everybody to be happy. She's creative. And the other is, you know, gets angry. If she lo- so angry, she'll throw the monopoly board up in the air. If she loses.
1: <laughs> it's like uh, it's it's interesting. One. So the so in the book as well, it kind of it, it sums up with you kind of stepping aside from Merrill Lynch in the early 2000s. Um, what kind of drove you to that? Because you're still I guess you're probably in the prime your career at that stage. Sure. Yeah,
2: I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. Let me let me tell you, <laughs> giving up 000, 000 a million-dollar-a-year job is a huge mistake. <laughs> not, not taking the Colin Stewart job, even with the risks around my settlement agreement with Merrill. Um, you know, I, I retired in Burk Commons, you know, um, went on sabbatical and never went back. So I call it my George Best moment, but walking out in 000, 000 a million-dollar-a-year job is not smart. <laughs> um, the, the Colin Stewart thing you know uh, the right thing to do was to wait because i was under contract and i did that and, and sort of backfired on me um, not taking the money in the court case was a bad decision so when i reflect on those backwards uh, you know one of the things that maybe made me a success is also has made me has been a liability for me which is um, my si- sort of single-mindedness doesn't always think rationally and in, 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 in all of those instances I, you know, had somebody been sitting beside me in the court case and said, listen, mate, you're going to take the money. I, I probably would have done, but no one was there. And I was yeah. there on my own and, and I didn't take it. And, and, you know, I guess I'd gone so far above everybody I knew by the time I was being offered money by Colin Stewart or anybody else. You know, there was nobody to confide in. You know, what shall I do yeah. here? You know, I was I was up there in the deep and in, in the blue sky on my own, you know. And uh, so I made bad decisions and, and they were bad decisions. But having said that, when I left Merrill Lynch, you know, I was really ready to go, you know, I, I was burned out uh, and burned out in the sense of working all the day, you know, and, and gambling at the weekends as well. So to compound the whole sort of pressure cooker effect, you know, I, I was betting, I was earning a million dollars a year and gambling a million dollars a year. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't, I wasn't losing, to be clear on this, you know, I wasn't losing a million dollars a year, but actually... I did stop gambling completely when I started to lose because why did I start to lose? Because I lost my focus. So because I had so much money, I threw five grand on this, 10 grand on that. Who cares? (laughs) You know, and and then when you do that, wake up one day, you know, as I said in the book, you know, in the early part of the book, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night before your 5.30 alarm clock and you go, shit, did I lose 15 grand last night?
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's not a good headspace Uh to wake up into. (laughs) And, Chris, you know, and it's not it?
2: the money itself, but like the whole sort of hurt. Oh, God, you know, this is everything you're not supposed to do, right? Yeah, and I um, was... a couple of drinks, slip into the boogies because they're open in this summer's racing, 15 grand, three, five grand chips. It's like going to the casino, which I never did in my life, never do, never do. Never play machines, never do casinos. Everything I've ever done strategic, thought about, it, it's supposed to be that, that way. And the moment you lose that discipline, just stop, which is what I did
1: and what do you what do, you do when, you, when you do step aside from Merrill Lynch in your, in your, I guess, timeline probably early 40s at that stage? Would you be even uh, 40? 39, yeah, 39. I retired at 39. So and um, you've you been like retired since then, as in even doing a few bits, but officially retired?
2: I had a few million dollars of stock in Merrill Lynch, and and I had a lot of personal property assets, so I owned a very fine house in London. Um, you know, my neighbor's creating the good of the BBC and that sort of Chiswick near the BBC and actors and so on and so on. Um, and then I had a villa in Portugal, I had assets in, in Ome, you know, I had a pub which had been offered a couple of million for, um, subsequently, I wasn't then, I had a couple of million, but I, I was investing in the pub with a plan to sell it, mm. that was the idea, and, and I put half a million, 650 grand into it over a two year period, I had an offer of two million in 2007, failed to make it happen and sold it for 1.44 million less, okay. 570 grand, 12 years later. So anyway, um, to go back to your question, I thought, you know, i have been gambling all my life. I'm a money man, right? So when I was a kid, I was running a rock band. Um, when I was 15, a guy in the pub called me Ireland's youngest impresario. <laughs> I was running a band called Casper, and, and getting guys like Rob Strong, Andrew Strong's dad to play in gigs, and then putting my guys on a support, and then making a bit of money, and putting them into the band. So, so all my life, I'd always made money. You know, it, it just sort of came easy. That, in fact, one of the still answering the question. By the way, <laughs> one of my problems was it all came too easy. You know, everything. Merrill Lynch was a, was a stroke of pure good luck, right place, right time. Um, getting into Queens, going back to school. You know, everything was a stroke of luck, and then I made it happen along the way. And I sort of felt quite infallible, I suppose. And of course that that is actually hubris, great word. And so uh, things did go wrong, you know, when you leave Merrill Lynch, when you leave Man United, you know, you don't go back, right? Number one, you drop down the leagues um, and um, you know, you go to Nottingham Forest and the pay goes down and the opportunities go down and clients go down and, you know, and, and it's like an aging striker, you know? So I had all of that experience, which was not very nice. And um, kept hanging in there for many years, and then I got absolutely hammered in the in the financial crisis, and so um, and lost a huge amount of money, <laughs> including all my options in Merrill Lynch, and because um, you mentioned that in the book uh, as well,
1: because the Mer- Merrill Lynch got uh, bailed out by uh, Bank of America, Bank of America, and then that so all the your options and stuff would just be it-
2: well, the options were priced at sixty, seventy, eighty dollars, and the thing was taken over at thirty.
1: Okay, so just this. Just- Way below
2: gone. zero.
1: zero. <laughs> Jesus. Okay.
2: It was quite a journey that one. Um, so, so in many ways, what I am today and, and writing the book as well, um, it's been a lot of reflection. You know, and um, so my greatest my greatest weakness. I, I didn't quite say the words earlier. You know, the the expectation of always winning. You know, in horses, because I knew everything about horses, I could pick a race. You know, I'd look at a, a spreadsheet of races and say. Out of the corner of my eye, that's the race to concentrate on. It's like five runners, small field, you know, the ground conditions, it's select like two horses. I'd pick between the two of them and that's it. And that was a very good formula. Um, and, you know, and, and playing poker, I was fearless, you know, basically. Uh, whatever, if you, you it's in the book again, if, if you face me down, you're either going to win big or lose your lot, you know, <laughs> simple as that. And people knew that and, and, and I had a good power in the game. Um, and in the markets, you know, I, I, I just generally had better judgment and I had more going on. So I just had everything go my way. And then it all went wrong. You know, and it's all in the book as well. <laughs> so, so hubris and, um, you know, this, this thing of infallibility, you know, where you think I lose today. It doesn't matter. I'll win tomorrow. That doesn't be that's 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 not the case in life, uh, as I learned.
1: It's such an interesting story, and I know we're we're just over the, the time, uh, a lot of that we, we, we talked about, so I wanted to be respectful of your time, but I think we started this podcast with talking about the inspiration part of the the kind of journey, and I think that there's probably, I was thinking about this, Mark, when I was reading the book, there's probably a lot of people that, that are from kind of like, maybe not the big, the big smokes around uh, Ireland, like Oma or whatever, and they can say, okay, I'm coming from here. I don't any, really, you know, don't have uh, parents backing me here or whatever, um, and they can still go have these uh, really exciting careers where they're uh, <laughs> where they end up uh, having enough money to gamble four and a half grand on a red card here and there, and uh, so I think I think that that if you want to have a, a read about that definitely the book is, is for you. I love the that it's already on audiobook straight away. I think that's a that's a great move. These days, people, you know, everyone's still on lockdown here and we're, uh, we're basically uh, reading while we're walking around our little 5K uh, here in the South. But um, yeah. yeah, so I, we wish you all the best of luck with the book um, and we're going to be blasting it out on our social media and everything like that uh, to our guys listening. Um, we do have one final question for you uh, this evening. Would you prefer... A mug or a shark pod T-shirt.
2: Oh, a shark pod for sure. Yeah, yeah. I uh, actually can I have both, guys. Can I have yeah. both. We can
1: you, you know, you're the second it's... person to ask for both, and we're gonna we're gonna make that happen. Uh, so after the after the show, uh, Marco, we reaching out to get some details. And,
2: and one, can I just say one final thing before we sure. wrap up? Yeah. This story, and you you pick up in your summary, Luke. This story is about the journey from John Street to Wall Street. That's the beauty of the story. You can do. it. Anyone can do it. You know, Mark, you're, you're in the business of, of finding people that, that might might do that. And it can be done. So everyone, you can do it. Work hard, have ambition. If you don't have ambition, you've got no chance, number one. Uh, and, and secondly, it's not for everyone. But if you do have the attitude and you do want to do it, you can do it.
1: Absolutely. And on that, I just one thing to add before we wrap up is that we were talking about this before the shark SharkPod. You want to, make sure that you're living a life that you might want to read about one day um if it's very if it's a bit mundane and you, you can feel that if you're like i wouldn't read about this i think that's uh something to maybe reflect on um, but at the the million million dollar irishman um like i said it's available everywhere amazon uh, audible all that type of stuff if you want to go to our audible link and sign up uh and you can get it for, uh, for free through for your first month uh, we will put that link in there from the shark pod as well um uh, but uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time tonight and I uh, wish all the best of the luck with the book. Chris.
2: It's with Easton's, Easton's Bookstation and um, and Kenny's as well. Perfect. Thank you guys. It's been a total right. pleasure. I've so loved this. Right. It's new for me, all this <laughs> stuff, by the way. It's great. Thanks You're, so much. You're a
1: natural. A natural. All right. Talk I soon, Chris.
2: It. Good stuff. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye.